Aliens and flying saucers. Hey, welcome to the 40th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the sizzling MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, I'm going a little fanish on this one. David Moranis is, for my money, the finest biographer on the planet. From Barack Obama and Bill Clinton to Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi, he chronicles lives and events like no one else I've ever known. So today, I'm pulling the longtime Washington Post associate editor aside and finding out how he reports, uncovers, writes some of the finest books to ever grace our shelves. It's really great stuff. And it's right now on Two Writers Singing Yang. All right, well, uh, David, first of all, um, I really appreciate you doing this. And I, I have to say, uh, of all the guests I've had so far, this is the most, um, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I, have, I have great admiration for your work. And, you know, uh, in particular, you know, when Pride Still Mattered, your, uh, your Vince Lombardi biography, uh, I consider one of the two or three great sports biographies ever written. So, you know, it's like one of those things where someone comes on, and you try to do work that even comes close to what they've done, and you repeatedly fail, but you kind of accept that because you know you can't quite reach that. So that well, there's my long-winded kiss-ass answer for thank you for being here. <laughs> well, I, every writer feels that way about some people. So uh, you know whether you're kissing ass or not, I feel honored that you said it. But I have those right. same reservations yeah. about what I do. Right, right. Um, I want to start with a question that has nothing to do with what I just said, which is this. I am, uh, okay. I'm currently, I'm currently the, the guest editor for the best American sports writing for, for 2018. And I just finished yeah. yesterday finalizing my 26 stories that I picked. And, and I know you did it 11 years ago. You did it in 2007. Is there even such a thing as the best American sports writing of a year? Because it, I read all well. these articles and I just think <laughs> to myself, it's really just my opinion. There's no, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's very oh, frustrating in a weird oh, way. Totally. No, I, I, that's what I did. I, mean, I picked one from some obscure online place who wrote a, who deconstructed a Bugs Bunny cartoon. The one oh, where he's awesome. playing all nine positions. And I got ripped right. for it by who knows? Maybe Sabermetric Steamheads or something. I don't, I can't, I can't remember. But so no, there, there's no, it's totally subjective. And that's the beauty of it. Just go with what strikes you as the most interesting and well done. Yeah, there was one story. It's kind of funny. There's one story. I won't say the author, or even the subject that I, I couldn't pull the trigger on. It was a single source profile of a former NBA player with a ton of misused long dashes, right? And, and just one source, <laughs> but I loved it and right. I kept reading it uh -huh. and I kept getting joy out of it. But I, in a way, I uh -huh. pictured in the back of my head, people going like, uh, Perlman, this guy shouldn't have been picked in the first place. And now he's, you know, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, very tough. So yeah, you didn't, tough. you didn't pick it. I wimped out. I wimped out. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you're allowed to wimp out once in a while, but generally speaking, just go with what you like. There's always going to be critics. And the most dangerous thing I, I always find is, is um, sort of self-censorship or worrying about what some, you know, right wing asshole or somebody, you know, or, or, you know, a critic of some sort 
people say about what I write. You just can't worry about that. You have to block it out. So are you able to? Um, I'm getting better at it. I mean, I certainly, you know, I'm human. And so there are definitely times when I'm thinking, well, how are people going to receive this? And, and I do want people to receive it well, but, but there's a, there's a fine line there between worrying about that and, and actually changing what you write to try to please somebody else, which you should never do. I've never written a book thinking about what people will like. Like I've never sat down and thought, will people like this sub, this subject matter? Will people like this chapter? Is this word choice going to work with people? I kind of feel like if I like it, someone else will like it too. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But, I, you know, at, at an earlier point, I mean, the book I'm writing now, I had, I had to um, argue with the publisher, not my own editor, who was wonderfully supportive, but the publisher didn't quite get it. And so, you know, I had to deal with that. <laughs> but after, right. but I mean, I knew that I wanted to do it and I was going to do it and I had to do it. And that's what counts. I'm fascinated to have this discussion. Um, I kind of want to focus a little bit here on when, when pride still mattered, um, which came out in 1999. So we're going almost, almost 20 years back oh, here. I know, which, which, it's weird, right? Doesn't that sound weird? Yes. Um, how do you, I'm actually interested in a, in a, in a real nuts and bolts sort of thing here that maybe I'll, I'll get five yeah. listeners for, but. When you say, all right, I'm going to do a book, I'm going to do a book, I'm going to write a biography of Vince Lombardi, this is what I'm going to do, and you get your book deal, what do you do next? Like, what do you do? Well, this was a funny case, because um, I was actually um, on Brian Lamb's uh, show back when he had uh, his show on writers, and he was Mm -hmm. talking to me about my my, uh, Bill Clinton book. And at the end of the long conversation, he said, what are you going to do next? And I just blurted out, <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I'm going to do a biography of Vince Lombardi. I hadn't really decided that I was doing it. I don't know where it came from. And then very uh, next week, I got a letter from a woman um, in uh, Hanover, uh, New Hampshire, who said, Dear David, um, I understand you're doing this biography of Vince Lombardi. My brother was Red Reader, who was a hero at D-Day and was an assistant coach at West Point. And he's, uh, he knew Lombardi at West Point. It was a great, uh, friend of his and is a great storyteller. And he's like 90 years old. <laughs> so the first wow. thing I did was find Red Reader and go talk to him, literally, wow. before I did wow. anything else, you know. Um, and he was a great storyteller and, and it was, you know, it was, it got me going. But the next thing I did, was um, it was right after the 1996 presidential campaign, and um, I was had been covering Bill Clinton for five years and was exhausted by that, and uh, so I turned to my wife literally the day after the election and said, "How would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter?" So the first thing I do is go there, and uh, so we moved out to Green Bay. Um, in November of 1996 and stayed there for four months. Um, what was her response when you said, how would you like, because if I said to my wife, would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? She would say, goodbye. Have fun. <laughs> see, you. see ya. Well, yeah, you know, her response, well, you see, we both grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, so it wasn't completely out of the realm, although Green Bay is, is a different world from Madison. But what she said was, burr. <laughs> 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 and uh 
but it was just the right time to, to, that she was free. She she just uh, uh, retired from a, her job as an environmentalist and was starting to work with me. And and uh, so, you know, it was just an, I just sold it as an adventure, um, which it was. So we we moved up to Green Bay, got a a, a house. Uh, north of Green Bay on the, on the bay itself in a little town called Brussels, Wisconsin. And within, within, uh, a week, everybody in Brussels knew that, that the, uh, Clinton biographer was in Green Bay. Uh, <laughs> the Green Bay press, the barmaid at the local bar spread the word, so did the postmistress. And then, um, the Green Bay Press Gazette decided to do a story on it. So they wrote a story, you know, uh, Lombardi, uh, Clinton biographer in Green Bay starting a biography of Lombardi. And they put my phone number in the story. And so I wow. started, to get all, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was weird, but it turned out to be fabulous. And those were the days still when you had answering machines, you know, the mm -hmm. type, the tape recorder that you press the button and replay it. And so every day I would go out. Finding, you know, there were still tons of people in the Green Bay area who, who uh, were old players or worked with Lombardi. You know, luckily they were still alive at that point. So I'd go out and do my research during the day and come home, and my answering machine would be full of people saying, you know, um, I was Lombardi's paper boy, or I was his, I was Lombardi's uh, caddy at Oneida Golf and, and riding, or I played the piano at at the bar in Appleton where Lombardi and Marie and his cronies would come in every Friday night before games. So I got all these stories that I never have gotten any other way than, than going there, having my telephone number in the paper. I never would have thought of these people. So um, three or four months in Green Bay was the start of my research after I'd talked to Red Reader, the 90-year-old right. right. You know what's really interesting about that is um... – I am usually very paranoid about the subjects I'm writing about. Like, I don't tell anyone. I keep it under wraps. People say, well, who, who are you writing about? I'm like, I can't say. And the book I have coming out next is about the old USFL. And I put it out on Twitter. I put it out on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this book. If anyone remembers anything. And the massive numbers of people who just reached out and said, oh, I was a ball boy with the Tampa Bay Bandits. Or my mom was a cheerleader with the Chicago Bulls. And it kind of changed my way of thinking a little bit with books. And maybe also if you make it sort of more of a community experience, number one, you're going to get responses. And I think number two, people feel invested in the book and maybe you're building up an audience that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, I think that's, I think that's true. I, you know, I worked for years with the most secretive reporter in America, Bob Woodward. So I know the mm -hmm. other side of that. I mean, we're close friends and he wouldn't even tell me right now what he's doing. Um, and you know, you won't, you won't even tell his book editor, you know, she can't even read anything. <laughs> so, um, so I'm sort of the opposite. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't go around telling everybody what I'm doing, but, but I don't hide it. And, and in a case like Lombardi, there was no, there was no downside to letting everybody know that I was there because people find you that way. So for most of my books, I, I haven't been secretive about it and I found it's actually helped me. How long, how, number one, how long did you have to write the book? And do you divide the time in certain ways? Is it a ongoing weaving of writing and reporting? Or do you do one, then stop and do the other? For some reason, every one of my books has had about the same rhythm, which they take 
three to three and a half years. Um, mm -hmm. And the first year and a half, I, it's exclusively reporting. And then at some point, and I don't know why it comes or where, but I, I say, okay, I'm ready to start writing. So I do, but I keep reporting, of course, till the very last word. I mean, I'm, I'm on the last chapter of my next book and I'm still reporting. So, um, right, right. but it's usually about a, a, a year and a half pure research, travel, document, finding documents, going to archives, then starting to write about a year and a half in and writing and doing some filling in reporting. Cause of course you don't know the holes until you start writing. That's really interesting because I'm, I'm good friends with a guy named, uh, I don't know if you know him, Jonathan Igg, who just wrote the Muhammad oh, Ali course. biography. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, um, a great book. And he's, yeah. yeah. And he's great. And he, he and I approach these in very different ways. Like he will actually write and report as he's going. And I, I'm like you, I can't do it. I need, I tell myself, okay, you're taking the, if you have three years to write a book, I can use two years and I'm just reporting and I'm not going to write a word. I'm just going to dig and dig and dig. And then yeah. the last X amount of time, I'm just sitting down, I'm writing every day and I need to write a thousand words at least a day. Um, but don't you, do you not, when you are reporting, do you not lose your mind to a certain degree? Do you not find yourself lost in the subject or sick of Lombardi or sick of Obama or sick of whoever you're writing um, about and just want to? So, well, you know, first of all, I, I made a rule to myself that I would never devote three years of my life to somebody that I hated. Now, of course, sometimes you can call. find out partway into it, you know, that maybe you will hate them, but. But uh, Clinton was the closest, but th but he was uh, he was so complex that there were times in his life when he was doing things that I hated and times when I admired him. So he just became a character to me as opposed to anything else. That was true of Lombardi, too. So um, once I once they become my character, then that matters less on whether they're doing something good or bad. It's just my goal to understand them. Um, but, yeah, so there are points where where I'm sick of them. Um, with Clinton, it came after I was way done with the book. <laughs> Just, you know, years and years of having to try to explain them to people made me sick of them. Uh, but um, uh, Lombardi, uh, there were so many different elements to his life um, that, I, you know, they were, they were sort of distinct. So, you know, after going to Green Bay is one whole cultural thing, as you know, from doing the Favre book. So I was immersed right. in that. Um, but Lombardi really is a New Yorker. You know, he spent the first 46 years of his life in the New York area, growing up on Sheep, in Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn, uh, going to school at Fordham in the Bronx, coaching in, in North Jersey across the river and up at uh, West Point and then back with the Giants. So, you know, there's so much of that culture to, to dig into. So I spent two summers um, we lived in New York City, which my wife enjoyed much more. And uh, yeah. <laughs> getting back to that Green Bay move, I mean, I've been making up right. for ever since. You know, how would you like to go to Rome for the Rome book, or Puerto Rico for that one, or uh, Kenya for the Obama book? So she's gone to many more interesting places than Green Bay. No offense to Green right. Bay. Right. Right. You know what's funny is when I did the Favre book, I know you had this too. I did the, but you're from Wisconsin, but I did the Favre book, and then I did okay. events in green bay and it was by far the biggest turnouts i've ever had for anything and my mom one day i told her about it and she's like man your career is really taking off and i'm like 
It had nothing to do with me whatsoever. It was no, had nothing to do with me. No, it's Favre on the cover. It's a Packers on the cover. It's a total. Oh yeah, no, it's a it's an easy yeah. play. Lombardi in in Wisconsin was the only time in my writing career where I couldn't even speak because there were so many people lined up to get me to sign their book. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a good thing. Um, I'm looking at chapter five. Uh, I'm not going to test you on what chapter five is from from. Lom- when pride still mattered, uh, lost in the Bronx. Yeah. And I just want to read something here. You wrote, uh, the American life abundant was there for all to enjoy in the shade of the grape arbor behind the old Izzo homestead, uh, in Sheepside Bay on the last Sunday of August, 1947, dozens of hot dogs and garlic to rub hamburgers from Lombardi bros sizzling on the grill, buns, toasting mounds of black olives, hot red peppers, sliced Bermuda onions and cold cuts heaped on picnic tables, barrels of draft beer flowing free and easy. So there's a lot in there and <laughs> oh, it's great. No, no, no. I don't mean it that way. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. But the imagery is, um, and I wonder when you, when you write that, you obviously are talking to different people about what kind of food they had and what would be at the picnic. Is it okay to sort of guess me a little bit? You know, like you, you don't know literally that a picnic on this day, someone was eating, you know, they might have their hamburger without buns, you know, blah, blah. You, is it okay to take scenes and sort of build scenes based on the memories of people and not be 100% certain that on that day they were eating hamburgers? Uh, that's an iffy question. I mean, in this case, I actually, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just people's memories. I actually had some written documents about that actual picnic and photographs Man. of it. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, I, um, I, I, I have to honestly say that I'm sure there are times in my writing career when I have, I have taken that very small leap about, you know, grizzly, you know, things uh, sizzling sure. on the grill. But in this book, I don't know that I ever did that. I mean, I, the documentation was. Kind of stunning to me of uh, the things I would get from the Izzo family. Uh, it was pretty well documented. Um, so they had photographs of that event. Um, there, there was even a story in one of the local papers about it because there were so many cousins there. <laughs> wow. So that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, do you enjoy the digging? Like, do you love the digging yeah, more I, I than the writing? It. I do. Well, I love both, but, but, um, the, the, the two sensations that that bring me real joy are um, finding some, you know, what I call a gold mine, you know, whatever, wherever right. it is, something I wasn't expecting to find it or hoping to find, but but was pretty sure I wouldn't ever get it, and I get it, um, or something I just never anticipated, um, you know, either in an archive or in an interview. I I absolutely love that. And the other one is finding it, writing a sentence or a paragraph or something that just feels right you know it just uh it just captures exact because there's so much you know in a writer's life where you you sort of feel something but you can't quite it's beyond words and so once in a while when you find the right words for it it's really thrilling before we continue with david moranis a quick word from our sponsor Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm sitting here with my daughter, Casey, who's suffering through an unfortunate addiction to the Kiss song, Shandy. Hey, Casey, want to go to the mall? I can't. I'm listening to Shandy. Casey, want to grab some pizza? I can't. I'm listening to Shandy. Want the rocks of cars? Shandy. Eat toothpaste? Shandy. Make fun of roosters? Shandy. 
Casey, want to order some throwback sports gear from 503 Sports? Wait, did you say 503 Sports? Home of the best USFL, XFL, and CFL clothing on the planet? I did. Forget Shandy, I'm in. In this house, 503 Sports always does the trick. Why? Because it's all about throwback. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State. Or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Gordon Banks Oakland Invaders jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Casey Perlman and Shandy. Go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. From the different books you've written, I'm going to top of your head here. What is the best find you've ever had? The best research find where you're just like, you know, yes, this is it. It's Christmas and bar mitzvah and Hanukkah and everything combined into one. And you're just like, this is it. Um, well, I'll tell you what, maybe not the best find, but it was pretty close. In my Obama biography, um, in his memoir, there was two pages where he says, I was in love in New York once and the woman was white. So the, from the moment that people started being interested in Obama, um, after his speech at, in Boston in 2004 uh, at the convention, every political reporter in the world was trying to find out who this woman was. And nobody did. And it took me two years um, working with uh, Julie, uh, I said the post, uh, who's Julie Tate, who's just a fabulous, she can find anybody in the world. But anyway, I, I, we kept going through all these different permutations. And finally, um, I got a, a friend of Obama's from college to say that on the back of an envelope, um, he, somebody wrote, by the way, Barack broke up from with Genevieve. So we had a first name, and that's it. And then, right. uh, uh, but from, from his memoir, we knew that she probably lived or had a family somewhere in western Connecticut in the posh parts of Connecticut. I kept putting things into the, you know, the system, trying to figure it out. And finally, we got a, um, a, a wedding uh, notice in the New York Times. Um, that just looked right. Everything about it. That her family uh-huh. came from Australia. She lived in Indonesia. Um, all these different things that looked like this might be her. Then I found, I went up there and went through the court records and found out she'd been divorced and remarried. And, um, finally figured out that she probably, what her name was now and that she was probably in Australia, 10,000 miles away. And, I had just gotten back from Indonesia from that part of the research and I had jet lag and I, I, we got her number and I called it like after midnight my time. So she'd be up at her time the next day. And she answered the phone and I said who I was and she said, how did you ever find me? Um, wow. Wow. And, uh, and then there's a, there's a wonderful kicker to it too. And then we, you know, um, for some reason she decided to talk to me. She, she was kind of new agey and I'm not new agey, but I'm softer. So that type of woman tends to, you know, you can tell within five minutes of an interview, whether you're connecting with a person or not. Sure. And I had, I had that connection with her. And then about a month later, she said, uh, she wrote me an email and said, David, you know, I've been reading a lot about you online. And I noticed that in your uh, interview about your Vietnam book, you said how, about how important contem- 
contemporaneous documents were. And she said, and um, how important contemporaneous documents were. And by the way, I kept a diary. <laughs> and wow. then I got her diary. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was one of those sort of. I remember going to bed that first night after my first interview where there was like four in the morning. Um, Linda and I were in Madison where we have a summer house. And she, Linda, who's, you know, lived with me for all of these many moons, woke up and said, gold mine. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, do you, when you speak to Obama, do you then tell him about this? And does, does he have a reaction or do you have to? I don't know, do you somehow have to be like, oh, I spoke to so-and-so and she blah, blah, blah? Um, in this case, I knew I would only get one interview with him. And yeah. um, and I wanted him to know that I knew a lot. So I let him know ahead of time that I'd found Genevieve because I knew that that would extend the interview. He'd want to know more about what I'd heard, what I found. Wow, that's very smart. I remember when I was just thinking when when I wrote a uh, my least favorite book I ever wrote and actually speaks directly to what you said earlier, which is you don't want to devote a lot of time to someone you don't want to write about. Um, mm -hmm. When I wrote my Roger Clemens biography, <laughs> which was just misery, but I remember I was interviewing someone in Texas and I wasn't getting, I wasn't, I just wasn't finding that much great material. And someone said the magical words. He said, you know about Roger's brother, right? Like that, uh -huh. you know about Roger's brother. And you're like, yeah, of course. But what do you know about Roger's brother? <laughs> and that was kind of a gateway where, you know, it turns out he was a, a drug addict and his wife was killed by drug dealers. And all of a sudden, it's kind of the fun of it all, isn't it? That these, these doorways yeah. open up and all of a sudden yeah. you're somewhere new and interesting. No, oh, absolutely. And getting back to the Lombardi book, that happened to me, of course, with, with his brother, Harold. When someone um, didn't say, by the way, Lombardi has a gay brother but just sort of implied that the brother was a little different from Lombardi. So then I found him in Petaluma, California, and he was living with a man, and he was, loved opera. And and it, it explained a lot about Lombardi's uh, tolerance that he had the gay brother. Do you have a general way you approach people when you think they might be reluctant to talk? You know, without sounding self-righteous, I've, I've always tried to be completely straight up with everybody. A little less so with politicians, not that I'm not straight up, but I have less sort of, you know, you, you get what you can out of politicians because they're always uh, lying to you, no matter what their ideology. Um, but with, with right. regular people, which are most of the people I interview for my books, you know, I tell them uh, that I can't make any promises, um, that I'm trying to find the truth, um, that I won't Play any games with them. I'll let them know what I'm finding if you know if they're involved in anything controversial, and um, just that I'm I'm not going to deceive them. Um, and that generally, uh, more often than not, that gets me further than if I tried to just butter them up. And not to say that I'm not friendly right. with them or trying to be uh, accommodating to this degree I can, but I also try to be straightforward from the beginning about you know, um, that I'm not looking to make anybody look good or bad to find, but to find out what's really happening. That, that's my approach. You wrote in, uh, in 2006, you had a uh, Clemente come out, the passion and the grace of, of baseball's last hero. And, uh, a really fascinating, fascinating book that I'm pretty sure was excerpted in sports illustrated at the time. Oh, well, there was another um, one of those gold mines, <laughs> you know, everybody knew that he died in a plane crash. 
and I and when there's a plane crash, there's usually a lawsuit. Um, and so I started poking around to find out where the documents would be from, you know, the investigation of the plane crash. In Puerto Rico, it it uh, the the court there uh, had lost all the documents. Um, it was appealed up to the first uh, U.S. District Court of Appeals in Boston, but those appeals were all just sort of uh, administrative and they didn't have any juice in it. Then I went through all of the lawyers who were involved in the case. And finally, three blocks from the Washington Post, where I worked, was a guy who had been a defense lawyer for the Federal Aviation Administration um, in 1973 when the case was brought. And I interviewed him for about two hours. And then he said to me, and you'll appreciate this, he said, okay, you're the guy. <laughs> and he walked wow. over to his closet and brought out two big cardboard boxes full of all of the depositions and all of the internal investigations and documents. So so in the last two chapters of the book, I was able to, in great detail, describe what really happened to make that plane crash, which was, of course, wow. tragedy. Yeah. When I wrote a, when I wrote Walter Payton's biography, and it, it was, you know, it was probably the, the, the hardest book I've ever had to write, the most rewarding, yeah. but also the most difficult. And you really kind of, it sounds corny, but you, you sort of live a person's life and you, you travel with them in a way, you know, from boyhood to Jackson State to Chicago. Then Walter Payton dies horribly. And yep. I found it really depressing. Not just depressing to read about and not just depressing to research, but depressing to sort of experience again and to go through the day by day and read the medical reports and talk to the Mayo Clinic doctors. I I found it just crushing and dispiriting and, and you know, put me in a bad mood. And I wonder, here you are with Clemente, this sort of noble and, and you know, legendary ball player, and then you're digging deep, deep, deep into his death. Um yeah, is it, do you find it draining? Do you find it difficult? Oh, it was very draining and very difficult and compounded by the fact that for a large part of my career, I had a fear of flying. Um, I oh, overcame it before I wrote that book, but I, I felt it. And Clemente had a fear of flying too. So, um, um, yes, I was completely wiped uh, writing those chapters. And um, it, in some ways, those were the most Difficult chapters for me of anything I've written um, to, to just plow through that. And of course, you know he's going to die in the end, but I just didn't want it to happen. Did you know a lot about Clemente going into that book? What I knew was that he was my favorite player as a kid, even though I grew up in Wisconsin with the Milwaukee Braves of Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews and Warren Spahn. There was something about Clemente, the way he looked in his uniform. And just the way he walked, and and he just seemed so cool, um, you know, a black Hispanic yeah. guy. Um, that it, you know, everybody as a kid has somebody, you know, whether it's a uh, athlete or a singer or someone, they just sort of feel this soulful connection to for reasons they can't quite explain. And that was Clemente for me. Um, so luckily, um, he also had more attributes than just. That, that that when I was an adult made me realize I could tell a, a bigger story. Um, but it's, I didn't know that much. I knew that he had a reputation for 
being a, a hypochondriac, which I am as well, so I connected there, um, or, yeah. you know, dying a noble death, which he did, um, and for being misunderstood. Um, and so, you know, but I didn't know any of the details. Is Donald Trump a good biography? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do it. I hate, you know, I can't, as I said, I can't write about somebody I hate. I think he's, I think he's incredibly shallow. I don't think there's anything more than what you see, which is not much, you know. So I, I think that the country that produced him, um, is just another reflection of how screwed up our America is. But, uh, I mean, that's interesting, but I don't think he is. I honestly don't. Um, yeah. maybe you could do a great opera about him, you know, <laughs> with the, with his sons and his, you know, daughter and, uh, Roy Cohn and, uh, you know, who knows, but, but as a biography, I'm not interested. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I have this USFL book coming out. So I spent a year and a half, oh, um, he's digging into, into that. I know I can't wait. Yeah. It's very interesting because I usually, I'm a pretty big sort of separation of, uh, of realms. And this is the one time where throughout the book, I felt I still had to be outspoken about Trump because he's such an awful menace to the world. And yet I'm writing this book about him. And I feel like it's going to come back to bite me in the ass when it comes out. And people say, well, you've been against this guy from the beginning, but I just, I don't know. Uh Oh, I I see. Because he doesn't. Yeah. Well, he doesn't come off well in your book, I would imagine, because he shouldn't come off well in in any honest rendering of of him as an owner, right? I mean, no, he ruined the league. I mean, he ruined the league. He truly ruined it for selfish reasons. Um, do you prefer writing about? Do you prefer end of the day? Do you prefer writing about athletes compared to politicians? Because you really, you sort of your career is a very mixed one um, in, in terms of subject. Yeah, uh, it's easier to write about somebody who's dead than somebody who's alive. <laughs> And it's easier Very to write true. about almost anybody than a live politician who's, who's president of the United States. So both right. Clinton and Obama were president when I wrote about them. And that was, you know, that was hard. And I, I kept trying to, you know, just like we talked earlier about trying to tell yourself that you're not writing to please your critics or or whatever. When I was writing those two biographies, I I had to tell myself they're not around. They're not alive. What's happening today has no bearing on what my book will be. You know, I hope that the book will illuminate why they are the way they are and what they do, but I can't have the book um, responding to what they're doing as president. In other words, if Obama is down at a certain point when I'm writing the book, I can't sort of write the book to try to explain why he was a failure or Clinton a failure or success. You know, so I had to sort of, tune out to, to what was going on to the extent I could, um, which wasn't easy. Um, and, but the other, the other side to that is I honestly believe that you can write as much about um, the important threads of American life through an athlete as you can through a politician. And that's, you know, I mean, I love sports, uh, but I also want the book to illuminate more than that. And I think you can in in a lot of athletes so lombardi was about the mythology of competition and success in american life and what it takes and what it costs um as well as you know notions of leadership and clemente was you know uh 
an immigrant, you know, a migrant worker in in America, um, you know, overcoming race and language to succeed, and then dying right. this incredibly noble death. So, you know, um, I think you can write about a lot through sport. How do you do? How do you deal with it when your book doesn't sell as well as you'd like? I ask because this is all um, this is all therapy. Uh, for me. How do you yeah, deal? No, how do you deal with it? I, I, I'm deeply depressed. Looking at all the other books that are on the bestseller list and one by one, um, just sort of shooting at them, you know, I mean, usually there are like two or three books on that list that are actual books. <laughs> you yeah. know, the rest are phony books and, and all writers know the difference. Um, right. and then the hardest part is probably, um, those first few weeks, if it, cause that's when you know whether it hit or not, you know, almost immediately. And so you're still on the book tour and you're trudging around and, uh, that's hard. You know, it, it, it's, it's ethereal. Uh, your light is any, is a feather if, if the book is selling and you're on the road. But if it's not, it's, it's pretty difficult. And then what was your most disappointment? Um, what was your biggest disappointment sales wise for a book? Like you thought this is going to be huge and didn't quite do what you wanted it to do. Well, it's interesting because it's, I think it's my best book, which is the Vietnam book. Um, right. they marched into sunlight. You know, it, it, Vietnam has always been a hard sell. You know, you can write about World War II or the Civil War and people will gobble it up, but, uh, there are very well respected books about Vietnam, but then none of them sold. Um, right. You know, at the time. Um, so that was, that was really disappointing. And I, you know, Oh, the other thing you do when your book isn't selling is you hate your publisher, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> you know, what, what the awesome. hell are they yeah. doing, right? Right. So that, that doesn't last, but it's certainly one of the first feelings you have. I'll tell you what kills me, kills me, is these books. Like there's a guy on Fox News, Brian Kilmeade, and he writes oh, them yeah, with yeah. Don Yeager and Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans. Then he's promoting it all over Fox News. Then it skyrockets up the bestseller list. And I wouldn't have a problem with it at all. Zero, zero percent. If you wrote it or John Wertheim wrote it or Jonathan Igre wrote it or a million different Jane Levy wrote it. I mean, but there's something about, you know, the kind of con here and you're oh, busting your ass researching a book. It drives um, you crazy. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. And there, there, there are usually five or six cons on every bestseller list, at least. Bill O'Reilly was even worse than Kilmeade, you know. Those yeah. Are atrocious. Let me ask you a final question. You're talking to a bunch of, uh, I don't know, 21, 22 year olds at whatever college you're speaking to. Do, uh, do you advise them to go into journalism in 2018? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great and important time to be a journalist. And, you know, right. for, it's, it's a very tough time for, for a lot of journalists who are, in their fifties or so and are losing their jobs because, um, their newspapers are disappearing. But for kids today, I mean, they grew up with all of these new forms of, of media, um, and social media. And the search for the truth has never been more important. Um, the notion that humans understand themselves through story will never go away. The platforms in which you tell those stories will always change, and that's fine. And um, so, and you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great time to be a journalist. Wait, have you um, have you lost faith in America? I, I mean, you've written so much about politics. Like, 
I'm actually, I'm asking this for therapy as well. I am, um, yeah, yeah. I'm battered. Like I am battered and I'm beaten down and I am full of dread and I can't believe what's happening. And I want someone to tell me it's going to be okay, but I'm a 45 year old guy and I feel like I should know better than needing someone to tell me it's going to be okay. Well, did you listen to Emma Gonzalez, (laughs) the girl down at, at yes, I did. I mean, yeah, I did. Actually, you feel it's going to be okay. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think America is a horrible, beautiful place. It's both of those things. And it, it maybe always has been certainly both of those things and maybe it always will be but um so you know when you study american history there's so many so many terrible things that america did to people um yeah and what's happening today is just in that line but there are also so many fabulous things about this place the other day you know there's so many things going on i was just completely you know and my wife takes it so She's an environmentalist. She's just completely depressed about what they're doing to the environment and yeah. along with everything else. And we were both really down. It was one of those days where the worst was happening. And we were we were downtown in D.C. And I was waiting for our car in the garage. And we, we had just been talking about how depressed we were. These four guys walk into the, the waiting room at the garage wearing tuxedos. And I said, what's going on? You guys are looking sharp. And they said, oh, we're a... We're a barbershop quartet. And um, <laughs> I said, well, my wife is here. It's Valentine's Day. Will you sing for her? And they sang a song, you know, and I was just thinking, you know, life is beautiful, too. It just, yeah. know, it's just really messed up, too. You know what gets me, honestly, Dave, what gets me? Yeah. I can't believe so many people fell for the con. That's actually what yeah. gets me more than anything, is that everyone right. fell for the con. Right. What you gets know. me is, is even more than those voters who fell for the con are the Republicans who are allowing the con to continue. Uh, yeah. They're responsible for this. You know, Trump is Trump. He always has been. Trump. I agree. But for, for these right. people to allow this to really just desecrate this country, it's just unforgivable. Man, this is the most depressing end to a podcast I've ever had. <laughs> well, just think Bring about it. the barbershop quartet. I was going to say, we need to bring in the quartet, damn it. (laughs) Well, that's okay. Um, Well, listen, seriously, thank you. Uh, I'm a huge admirer of your work. I really am. And and, Thea, thank you so much for doing it. Okay. Um, I can't wait for your book to come out. Give me a point. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) I want to thank today's guest, David Moranis, for joining me on True Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow David on Twitter at David Moranis and visit him at davidmoranis.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to True Writers Slinging Yang on iTunes and Anchor, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is from MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. 